Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Matthew chapter number one, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But she... But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, excuse me, as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took his wife. Now Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, and it reads, I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who, who lives in me. And the flesh I now, in the, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteousness. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is the word of the Lord. See, I I mean, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the... 19th century preacher once wrote, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. So I'm welcoming you back to our short series on Christmas, where we are taking a break from the gospel of Mark. And as we talked about last week, there are three reasons uh, why we're talk- taking this short break and focusing on this particular miniseries. Number one, because December is the time of year that we celebrate Christmas, and Christmas, as you know, is a celebration of the fact that God came into the world to be with us. Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ, and not only just a baby being born to us, but God coming to earth. Is there any way we could turn this down just a tiny bit? Um, Are we good? Okay. Thank you very much, guys. All right. Which then leads to number two. Does that make it okay in the, the live stream, Carson? All right. Which then leads to number two. The incarnation of Christ 
You see, I have to tell him to turn it down because I'm going to get loud. So you know, you know me, right? <laughs> All right, which then leads to number two, the incarnation of Christ, right? And the reason why we celebrate it um, is, is the hope that we cling to. That's the truth. Right is the hope that we cling to, the fact that, that God himself came into the world on a rescue mission to save us is our hope. That's why this series is called The Hope of Christmas, because this time of year we are reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. Right, And then number three is, is the, the reason why we're in this series is if there's anything that the world needs right now in this moment is hope. It is the hope of Christ. And that's the truth we talked about last week. We spent a lot of time talking about the external things that, that, that we look towards for hope. The fact that we live in a fallen, broken world filled full of fallen, broken people. And the fact that we're surrounded by uncertainty and turmoil and hatred. Right? We talked about the fact that all of the world is searching for hope. But they're searching for hope in the wrong places. Right? The world looks to the government for hope. The world looks to politicians for hope. The world looks to, to the medical industry for hope. The world looks to money for hope. The world looks to other people for hope. But ultimately, all those things cannot satisfy the hunger and the longing that is in us, the hope that we have within us. Because, because there's in us a longing, in all of us, a longing for all things in the world to be made right. There's a longing for, in all of us for a time and a place when, when there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears or death or hatred or betrayal or cancer or anything else. And, and we, as we talked about, is the fact that, that, that the hope of Christmas is the hope that guarantees that those who, you know, is the hope of Christmas that those who hope in Christ, that those longings that we have will be satisfied in Christ. Because Christ came into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, right? He came to reconcile us back to God. And so one day we can actually stand in God's presence without any fear or without any, any remorse and live forever with him, with those that we love, without the influence or the effects of sin. That is the hope that we are all longing for that will be realized when we are at home with Christ, the hope of Christmas is a hope that one day that everything in the world will be made right because, because of the work of Christ. And then one day in the future, God's redemptive work will be complete. And those who trust in Christ will all rejoice and worship him together forever. That is the hope that we're holding on to. Right? That's the future of our hope. But that is still future. What about today? What about our hope today, now? What about the hope that we, that we have in this life? I mean, we're talking about all the external things, but what about internally? You see, Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and peace and hope and love. But for all of the external celebrations that's happening around us, for all of the external beauty of all the decorations... For all of the festivities that we, that we participate in, many people, including Christians, this time of year actually is a time of stress. It is a time of anxiety. It's a time of depression, a time of feelings of inadequacy. So many of us feel inadequate this time of year. 
Some people feel inadequate because they just don't have enough money. Some people you know, don't have enough money to get all the gifts that they would like to give to other people. Some people feel inadequate because they don't have enough money to give the quality of gifts that other people are able to give. Some people feel inadequate because they don't have enough time. They don't have enough time to do all the things that they wanted to do, like set up the lights and the Christmas cards and get all the shipping, you know, the shopping done, making all the crafts and the treats and the desserts and the food, calling everybody that needs to be called, visiting all the people that need to be visited. This time of year, it's like you're rushing from one place to the next and there's just never enough time. There's so much to do and we begin to feel like we're failing because we can't get it all done. I know I can personally fall into that one, you know, this time of year, add with it technology on top of everything else we're doing, right? But then if that's not enough, right, what about the the real internal stuff? What about the real deep sense of failure that we can experience? The true sense of inadequacy. You see, this time of year, we're often confronted as we think about the Lord and His Word We're confronted with with who we are in here. The thing is that Christmas is about the truth that Christ came in the world to save us from our sins. But many of us find ourselves this time of year looking in the mirror, seeing who we really are. And we see that we're still very, very sinful. That we're still covered up in our sin, it seems that it seems that we still have so much growing to do, that we are so far from perfect, it's not even funny. And the weight of that can can weigh us down. In fact, there are times you could even wonder, is there really even any hope for me at all? Seeing yourself for who you are can be painful. You're painfully aware of of what you still lack. I mean, as we look in the mirror of God's law, we still see how vain we still are. Because we have this tendency, all of us, to make it about ourselves all the time. We make it about ourselves, about our own feelings. We make it about our own plans. It's about our own wants and desires. We tend to think about ourselves before we think about other people. But Christmas is supposed to be about the opposite of that, right? We also look in the mirror and we see how jealous that we can be. Jealous of other people. Jealous that other people have more than us. This time of year engenders lots of jealousy in lots of people. Jealousy because some people get more and nicer gifts than us. Jealousy that that some people's kids get better stuff than our kids. Jealousy that we can't give more than other people can give. Jealousy that we're not invited to all the other things everybody else gets invited to. In fact, there is so much jealousy at Christmas. Some families actually break up their gift giving between their family members. They don't want to give gifts to all of them at the same time just in case, you know, She's guilt, she's jealous of all the stuff that you know that they got. Jealousy is still alive in many of us, and we see it in our hearts, despair of it. We don't want to be like this, we don't want to feel this way, but it's sometimes still there. We know that we're not supposed to be this way. We know that's not how we're supposed to feel. But then we look in the mirror this time of year and we see that, or we see how bitter we can still be. How so many of us are holding on to deep bitterness and grudges and deep hurts that we find ourselves struggling so desperately to forgive other people those that christ has commanded us to forgive 
This time of year especially reminds us that we're supposed to be forgiving, right? Even the world itself kind of knows that you're supposed to be forgiving. Just watch the Hallmark Channel, right? But we find in ourselves that we're still nursing grudges and harboring resentments. We know that we need to let them go. We know that we need to forgive. We feel convicted about it, but we still struggle to get over it. And we look in the mirror and we see all of these things in our lives, and in some of us even more. We still see anger and, and, and hatred. Some feel, still struggle with thoughts of lust, selfishness and deception. Some of us will see apathy and weakness in ourselves. We see ourselves for who we really are. And we see, right, we are still a long way away from what the law of God says we ought to be, and what we know what we ought to be. We see ourselves in the light of God's holiness, and we realize just how unholy we still are. And many of us Christians, in times like this, we will begin to despair because of it. Because it can feel like we're really never going to get any better. We're never going to get over it. It can feel like it's never going to change. It can feel like, like our hope for God saving us will never be realized. It can feel like we're just fooling ourselves because we, we can see clearly how broken we still are. We're painfully aware of how short we all fall. And for many of us, this leads to, to three different but equally unproductive responses there are three ways that all of us typically respond to this feeling, and all of them really are actually going to make things worse. The first response is legalism. That's the one that, that's the gravitational pull of all of our hearts, by the way. Right? This is where we see that we fall short and we decide, I need to fix this. I need to do something about it. I need to try harder. I need to work more. I need to obey the law. I need to punish myself if I fail. I need to memorize the rules. I need to concentrate and work so hard. I need to do this and I need to do that and I need to do this. This right here is the response where we feel that if we're a serious Christian, we are going to overcome sin just by our sheer willpower. We're going to do whatever it takes. Only to find that the harder we try, the more we fail. Now hear me. We are called to put to death the flesh. We are called to put to death the flesh, right? And we are called to pursue holiness. I mean, John Owen said, be killing sin or it be killing you. In fact, that's what Matt's t-shirt says. Right? Be killing sin or it be killing you. We are to take seriously obedience and holiness. And we are, and we are certainly to be concerned about the remaining sin in our lives as we do pursue holiness, but understand you will not accomplish any of those things by your own efforts. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You will not accomplish this by pursuing legalism or trying to obey a set of rules. You'll never get there. You don't have it in you. In fact, legalism will ultimately drive you further from holiness. Because legalism, what it can do is only make you prideful and self-righteous. Which, by the way, is the opposite of what the gospel teaches. And so the first response is legalism. The second one is apathy. This is the trap that many fall into because of the modern-day false teaching of the carnal Christian. 
Many people believe that if I just pray this prayer, right, if I just come up to the altar, if I invite Jesus into my heart, I'm saved no matter what happens in the rest of my life, right? So it doesn't matter if I continue to live in sin. It doesn't matter, right? I shouldn't even think about it. I shouldn't even worry about it. It's not a big deal. I mean, it bothers me, but really it's not a big deal. You know, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I just live my life being happy. You know, once saved, always saved. So the fact is, I just continue to live in unrepentant sin. It's not a big deal. Well, let me just tell you, that's a delusional response. Because if you have an encounter with God, you understand that sin is still a big deal. And the Christian life is to be marked by growing in a hatred of sin. Our sin is supposed to grieve our hearts. Right? And as we look at it, we see how beautiful Christ is. Sin must become more and more horrifying to us. And so apathy is a very dangerous response. Then you have the third response, which is hopelessness. This is where you realize that the ugliness of your sin and you feel the weight of it and you also realize there's not anything you can do to overcome it. You can't work hard enough. You can't keep the rules. right? But you keep seeing the sin in your life over and over and over again and you hate it. You hate your sin, but it just seems like you're never, ever, ever going to get past it. And you begin to believe, maybe I'm just one of those people. Maybe there's just something so wrong with me that I can't be saved. Maybe there's something so wrong with me that there's no way God would ever love me. Other people can be saved by grace, right? But for some reason, I can't. My sin must just be especially bad. There must be just something uniquely wrong with me. Otherwise, I would, already, I would have already overcome these sins that I'm wrestling with. And for people like that that fall in that category, they hear the stories about how God has set people free from addiction and from egregious sin in an instance. And they look at those people and go, why them and not me? How can they get over that so fast? But I can't. What's, what's wrong with me? I really must not have a relationship with God then. Maybe God just doesn't really love me. But I want you to hear me on this. None of these responses are biblical. Not a one of them. And none of them are true. Not legalism. Not apathy. And not hopelessness. The reason why so many of us fall into these responses is because we lose sight of the truth of the gospel. We lose sight of the fundamental truth of why we celebrate Christmas. I want to remind you of this truth. And it's my hope and my mission today that you will walk out of here in spite of the technological difficulties. But that you will walk out of here with a renewed sense of hope. Right? Not just for the future, not just looking just for the time when we will go home to be with Christ, but also here and now. And not just for the external things that happen around us, but for the stuff in here. There is a way that you can live at peace in here in spite of yourself. And I'm going to share with you that today. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. And while you're turning there, Everything look okay, guys? All right. Praise the Lord. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and willing to put, will, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, as I begin with this text, um, I want you to realize that there are two important promises that are in this text. Two promises that we are given at Christmas. Two promises that you need to take and etch into your heart. Two promises you need to grab a hold of and hold on to with all of your might. They are, number one, is the promise that Jesus will save his people from their sins. That is why Christ came into the world. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, right, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? That's the promise of Christmas. And number two, the promise is that Jesus, God in the flesh, is with us. God himself came into the world to be with us. And the thing that we need to understand about these promises and want you to see is that these promises are intimately connected together. You need to understand these promises are actually necessary for one another. You see, the way that Christ saves us from our sin is to come and be with us. Otherwise, we don't get saved. And the reason why Christ came to be with us is not simply so that we, he could live among us and encourage us and be an example for us. He came to save us from our sins. The thing is that you have to understand is you cannot have one without the other. His presence with us and salvation are permanently linked together. Christ came to be with us and to save us. This is something we need to keep in mind. And the other thing that we need to understand is that Christ came to be with us in the flesh to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's the thing we need to remember. He's, he did for us what we can't do for ourselves. He came to live the life that you couldn't live. He came to obey the law that you could not yourself obey. He came to fulfill the covenant that must be fulfilled that you can't fulfill. And to die on the cross to pay a penalty that you have no ability within yourself to pay. And to bear in his body the wrath of God that you cannot bear. Christ came and did all that physically to secure for you justification. That's the part of salvation where you have right standing with God. You are justified and given a right standing with God, not because of what we have done or what you have done, but by faith in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. We are justified and saved from the penalty of sin by faith in Christ. Jesus came to be with us physically that we might have that we might be justified and saved from the wrath of God, which is the penalty of our sin, which is exactly what we know. Everybody knows that story. Why did Jesus come? To save us from our sins. We know that part. 
We also know that the fulfillment of our hope is to be with Christ again in eternity. And when that happens, we will be saved permanently from the, not just the penalty of the sin that we have, but the presence of our sin. When we finally are at home with Christ and we are glorified, as we talked about last week, we are finally will be saved from the effects and the influence of sin. And we'll be with Christ forever. We'll be in his presence, saved forever from the presence of sin. The thing that we need to see is salvation and the presence of Christ, they go hand in hand. And we see that in the past for our justification, but we also see that also in the future for our glorification. And the thing that we need to see here and now the thing that, that gives us hope at Christmas during the times where we're struggling with who we are is the fact that Christ's presence and his salvation continue to be connected. And Christ's presence and his ongoing salvation continue to be present realities even now. Have you ever really thought about that? That Christ's presence and his salvation is a present reality. Christ Jesus came in the past, and we were justified by faith in the past. It's done. It's over. It's been, it's been taken care of. And as we hope, right, we will, we will look forward to being with Christ in heaven in the future. Our glorification is still future. But what about right now? What about today? How does this truth impact us today? Well, this is where... The hope of Christmas inspires us. In fact, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. Does that say there? In me. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth that you need to hear today. This is the truth that you need to remind yourself of today and every day after this. This is the truth that we need to remind ourselves of when we become painfully aware of our inadequacy and how short we come and how sinful we still are. It is the truth that if we are in Christ, Christ is presently within us right now. In fact, the Greek word here makes it emphatic. Greek, the Greek word makes it, gives us the idea that Christ is actively present and living within us in this moment. He is with us this very moment. That means Christ is still with all of us if we're in Christ. Do you understand how awesome that is? That Christ is with you right now. And why? Is Christ with you? What did Christ come to do to be with us? He came to save you from your sins. Remember the promise of Christ's present and salvation. They're interconnected. They're always together. Christ came physically in the past to be with you, to save you from the penalty of the sin in the past. And we're going to be with Christ physically in the future and we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But Christ is now with you spiritually. And the thing that you need to remember right now, right, 
is, is at this very moment you are being saved from the power of sin. This is the part that we forget, I think, as Christians, that we are being set free progressively right now from the power of sin by Christ who lives in us. The very sins we struggle with, Christ is right now in you, saving you from the power of that sin. You see, the hope of Christmas is not just our justification in the past, and it's not just the hope that we have for future glorification. The hope of Christmas is the ongoing hope of Christ's continual presence in us, with us, in our sanctification. This is the part, again, as Christians, I think we lose sight of. I know I have so many times in the past. The ongoing work of Christ in our lives where he himself is slowly changing us and molding us from the inside out, transforming us bit by bit into the image of Christ. You understand the power of that? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ died in my place. That happened in the past. And he says that and through faith in him, I am united with him in his death. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, Paul even gets more explicit and says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? When you get baptized as a believer, you, are, you reenact the death and burial and, and the resurrection of Christ, and, and you are identifying yourself with that when you get baptized. I don't know if you realize, when you go under the water, you are saying, I am dying with Christ. That's why Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, not only is our old nature being put to death, but Christ himself, God himself, takes up residence inside of us. Which means he is presently and actively with us. Hear me, brothers and sisters. You can't hear this often enough. If you were in Christ, Christ is right now in you. And wherever you go, and wherever what happens to you, Christ is still with you. And Paul says, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now notice what he says here. The life I now live, I live by What? By faith. And the reason why this is important is because Paul wrote this letter to a group of, of churches in Galatia who had become convinced that salvation required more than God's grace by faith in Christ. They became convinced that you also need to become obedient to the law, that you had to become Jewish to be saved. And the reason why they believed this is because a group of people known as Judaizers came to those churches and began to teach them that. And they taught them basically two assumptions. Number one, that only the Jews are God's people and only them can be saved, which Paul basically dispenses with that throughout the letter. In fact, he even goes so far to say that, that Abraham's descendants aren't people that are related to him, but Abraham's descendants are people who have faith in Christ. And then number two, the second assumption was that they believed that, that obedience to the law had to be required. And the thought was, is without the law and without rules, people were just going to be lawless. They're going to use their faith as an excuse to, to, to sin. That they would become apathetic, saying, I'm saved, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of my life. They thought that unless you have some standard to live by, you would simply say, I'm saved by grace, and obedience doesn't matter. 
That's what they believed, and that's what they taught. But Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that those of us who are in Christ have been radically transformed. Something's happened to us. We have a new nature. We're a new creation. Christ himself now inhabits us. And as such, we're not going to just simply live our lives winking at sin, acting like it's not a big deal, pretending that obedience doesn't matter, but rather we're going to live our lives by faith in Christ because Christ came to save me from the penalty of sin and now lives in me, saving me from the power of sin. You see, I don't have faith in me. I don't have faith in my ability not to sin. I don't have faith in some external set of rules that somehow if I do them, they're going to make me lovable to God and acceptable to God. No, I have faith in Christ who already loved me and who gave himself up for me before I could even do anything else for him. He secured your salvation before you could do anything for him. Remember last week he said, in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? All of us. Right? And then he emphasizes the point and says, but God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, still in the act of sinning, is really what the, how the Greek renders it. Christ died for us long before we could ever even respond, long before we could do anything to make God even look at us in, with favor. He already did it. What Paul is saying to the Galatians, they don't have faith in anything else but him and him alone. I don't believe in myself. I don't believe in my ability to keep the law. I don't believe in the religious rituals that have been given to try to keep me from sinning. I trust in Christ and Christ alone. That is it. And then he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, which is exactly what, what the Jewish people were saying that he did that he was basically teaching something that basically spat on the grace of God. They said that if you don't require obedience to the law, you're just essentially making God's grace worthless because people are just going to spit on that grace and they're going to sin and not care and they're just going to think that they're justified no matter what they do. But notice what he says next. He says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I don't know if you ever thought about that. In other words, if you had the ability to keep the law and become righteous on your own, then there was no point for, for Jesus to die and suffer on your behalf. His death would be pointless because if you could do it, then you don't need him. Now, let that sink into your conscience just for a moment and think about this. As you struggle with the sins that you face, as you battle discouragement, realizing just how far you have to go, as you think to yourself, I just need to try harder. I just need to do more. I just need to. I just need to. If you could do it, if you could keep the law, then you wouldn't need Jesus. But you couldn't do it. You couldn't. 
You needed Christ to do it. You need Christ to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself to justify you. And here's the thing that you need to see today. You need Christ still to do for you what you still can't do right now. You need Christ to sanctify you. You need him to continue to change you. You need him to give you the ability to obey. Because here's the truth. You can't do it on your own. You still need him to do it for you. And then Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He said, I preached to you the gospels that Christ had to die for your sins. And then he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He gets right back to their, their conversion experience and he asks them, how is it that you even came into relationship with Christ in the first place? Was it by your own efforts? Was it by the fact that somehow you figured out how to keep the law and then Jesus magically appeared in your heart? Was it by being religious? No. You were justified by faith. You heard the gospel and believed, and then you were justified. You were justified by believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then he goes right for the jugular and he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or in other words... Your relationship with God and your salvation began by what Christ has done for you and your faith in that. But now you think that somehow you're going to overcome the power of sin in your life by your own efforts? That somehow your own strength is going to become, you're going to become obedient to the law? You were justified by faith in Christ and now you're going to somehow sanctify yourself by somehow having enough willpower to, in your own ability to, to, to keep the law and, and be obedient to God? Brothers and sisters, this right here, this is the issue that many of us Christians face. We hear the gospel. We repent and we believe. Our lives change. We experience the overwhelming joy of our salvation. And then, as life continues on, as we learn more about God, we get closer to Him. And as we get closer to Him, our sin begins to stand out more and more to us. And the more we love God, the more we hate our sin. The more we hate our sin, the uglier sin becomes. The uglier it becomes, the more aware of it we become. And then we look in the mirror of God's law, we still see how sin plagues our life and it still affects us. Our spiritual eyes are, are now open and we see how vile our sin is and how we still have to battle it. But then the problem is our modern day American Christianity has taken the gospel and just simply reduced it down to something you do to get in the door to get saved. That you pray some prayer. You come forward at an altar call. You invite Jesus into your heart, and now you're saved. And now it's time to move on from the gospel to the next part of the Christian life, which is growing in obedience and holiness. You get saved, and now it's time to get to work cleaning up your life. That's American Christianity. You get saved, and now you've got to start looking better and being better and trying harder and working more. In fact, I even heard one Christian say this. 
They quoted Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and they said, now we're Christians, we need to start working it, growing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We need to start concentrating and developing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. No, 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 no. That is not the gospel. The gospel is just not something you just do to get saved. It is not just the entry point into the Christian life. The gospel is all of the Christian life. The gospel is a truth that you can't do anything on your own to get saved. The gospel is a truth that you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, and you can't do anything of your own anyway. The gospel says it's impossible for you to do anything. The gospel is that Christ did it all for you. Hear me. He did it all. He paid it all. He lived the righteous life that you couldn't live. He died to pay for your sins. He did it all. Not some, but all. And what you do is then receive that by faith. And that's it. And guess what? The rest of your life, you continue to receive that by faith. And that's it. You begin your relationship with Christ by faith in Him and what He's done, and you continue that relationship with Christ, not by your obedience, but by faith in Him and what He's doing in you right now. You see, the basis for your relationship never changes. It's always about faith in Christ. The truth that we need to hold on to is we are never saved from the penalty of our sin by what we can do for God by being obedient. Right? If the truth, If that's the truth then we are never going to be saved from the power of sin by being obedient to God. All of salvation in the past, in the future, and in the present have the same exact foundation, and that's the grace of God. All of salvation, past, present, and future, have the same means, and that is the finished work of Christ. And all of salvation, past, present, and future, are received in exactly the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your hope to overcome sin that you're struggling with today, your hope to overcome the battles that are plaguing you, is the same hope. And that is faith in the presence and in the power of Christ. Your hope is to believe that Christ is still with you, saving you, from the power of the sin that's in your life. Now with that, does that mean that our obedience is not important? <laughs> no. That's not what that means at all. What that means is we need to get clear about the role of obedience and how that plays in our life. You see, obedience is not the root of our salvation. We don't obey to get saved. Obedience is the fruit, the byproduct of our salvation. We're not saved because we obey God's commands. We obey because by the natural byproduct, we have been saved and we're continuing to be saved. We obey because Christ justified us and because he's at work within us, changing us, giving us the ability little by little to obey. And here's the thing that we need to see here. The more you trust in Christ, the more you naturally grow in your obedience to him. Those two things are interrelated. You see, the way to obedience isn't about living by a set of rules and trying really, really hard. Obedience is about turning to Christ in faith and saying, Lord, change my heart and change my life. Have your way in me. 
and then trusting in him to do that, believing that that's exactly what he's going to do. It's about making Christ the center point of your life and trusting him with all that you have and trusting in him alone. This is the way to obedience. This is how we have victory over sin is to continue to repent and believe the gospel. You see, the Christian life never changes from beginning to end. We're always in the same place in repentance and faith. Now, here's the point where I'm going to get real practical. Because I'm going to be honest this right here is an area that I have struggled with many, many times in my own life. The fact is I knew that God had changed my heart and brought me to a place of salvation. He helped me to see my sin and my need for him. And I genuinely repented and believed the gospel because God had given me the grace to do so. And I went from being an atheist who hated God, I hated him, to becoming somebody who knew he needed God like that. And, and, and as I look back at my life, I could see that my, my, my profession and faith was genuine. And I could see that God had radically changed my life. In fact, if I look at myself now and compare myself to back then, the, the difference is, is a world of difference. I'm not even close to being the same man. But then there have been times I've struggled because even though that I'm completely different, I can still see there are just things that I've been battling with and continue to battle with. There have been times that I would battle with anger, deep anger. Times I would battle unforgiveness, deep unforgiveness. I would battle pride and so many other things. And even now, even now, I'm still painfully aware of how short I fall. It seems like now, I sometimes think I'm worse than I was before. I realize I'm, I've changed. It's just my awareness has changed. But there has been times because of my weak theology and the weak foundation that I was given as I fell into the trap of legalism over and over and over again. I mean, I would believe that I'm saved, but then I was convinced I just need to work harder. I just need to try hard, you know. I mean, sometimes it becomes the point where I'm just like, like shouting at myself out loud, you know. Almost it's the point where I just want to punch myself in the face. I feel so frustrated. Right? I need to try harder. And then my life would be punctuated with periods of time where I was just on fire all the time for the Lord. Praise the Lord all the time. I was just so joyful all the time, you know? And I, and I would focus on these battles. And I would feel like believing that I'm growing in holiness. But then there are those times that were followed by just abject failure. I look in the mirror and go, I hate you. I hate the person that I am. I'd fall into depression because I was so aware of how egregious my sin is and how it still just plagues me. It sneaks up on me and jumps on me. And I'm like, I knew it was coming. But here it is again. And it seemed like I'd never be able to, to, to overcome it. And I would look in the mirror and I would just hate what I would see. I, would, I mean, I'm seriously, there were times I'd, I'd look in the mirror and say, I hate you. Like, I mean, I just hated myself because of my sin. And in moments I would, in my life, I would wonder if I was even really saved. I would even question, did, did I even actually understand the gospel? I mean, gosh, somebody else, other people in their lives seem like they have it all together, but me, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a train wreck. Can God really love someone like me, a dirtbag like me? And in those moments, I'd fall into the, the realm of hopelessness, right? And I'd wallow in depression, not wanting to talk to God, not wanting to pray, not wanting to read the Bible, 
right? And then I would resolve, then I just need to try harder, right? And the cycle would start over again. But that cycle continually left me empty and defeated. Not only feeling the weight of my sin, but also battling this debilitating depression. I kept thinking that somehow I was failing to make God love me. And then I heard two messages that changed my life. The first one was where Paul Washer preached on the idea of the spiritual penalty box. If you ever need that, just type in Paul Washer, spiritual penalty box, it'll come right up. He says, we as Christians, when we fall into sin, we tend to put ourselves into the spiritual penalty box because we make a mess of things and we think, okay, I can't go to God now. I just sinned. How can I now go into his presence? Because I just sinned. I'm dirty because of my sin. And worse than that, I just sinned the same sin I did yesterday, which was the same sin I did like yesterday and the day before and the day before. How can I now go to God now? I mean, it's just ridiculous. He's just not going to even have anything to do with me. How can I, in conscience, go to God and ask for grace? He's not going to accept me now. I mean, I've done this same stupid thing 10,000 times. Paul Washer said, we're not supposed to live this way. We're not supposed to live by trying to punish ourselves with self-loathing, by denying ourselves the presence of God. He said that what we sin, we don't need to run from God. We need to instantly turn around and run to Him. Saying, save me, Lord, because I can't do it. He says, grab a hold of Christ and hold on to him with all you have and say, Lord, I'm not letting go no matter what, because you promised that you'll save me, not because of what I'm doing, because what you've done for me, and I'm holding on to that and believing that and trusting it no matter what. I'm holding on to you alone. That teaching had a real profound effect on my life. It would help me to see that my life is not about waiting for God to like be not mad at me and then I can turn and repent and believe. I need to continue to repent. When I make a mistake, to turn to God instantly and say, Lord, here's evidence of the fact how much I still need you and turn to him in faith. And then the second thing I heard was a pastor in a message. He said, we need to continually be preaching the gospel to ourselves. This, that teaching helped me to see we as Christians just don't know the gospel well enough. We don't, because if we did, we'd be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day and reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. That's the second thing. And when I heard this, I began to think a lot more about this because I really fell into this idea, right, that when you believe you are saved, that's, you know, the gospel is the entrance into the door, and then now you spend the rest of your life growing in holiness by you know, trying harder and reading the Bible and go to church all the time and being nice and never let anybody see that you're upset and, you know, saying gosh darn instead of letting things slip out of your mouth and trying to act like you don't, you know, put your f- finger up in the air when somebody cuts you off in the traffic and things like that. But I began to preach the gospel to myself. And as I did, I began to see things differently. And I came to realize that there's something in me that there's nothing in me actually that compels God to love me. There's nothing in me that compels God to love me, even now. I mean, there are times I think I'm a pretty good person. I like to say I'm decent, but not even that makes me worthy of God's love. Right? That was true in the beginning of my relationship with God, and it's still true today. He still loves me because he wants to love me. God loves me in spite of me. He loves me because he chose to love me. He loves me 
Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. And in light of that, then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin. And here's the thing. Church family, hear this. All of your sins. All of them. The past, present, and the future ones. Right? It's been atoned for, right? The blood of Christ paid for all of my sins, which means me falling into sin, even today, doesn't disqualify me from eternal life because that sin has already been atoned for as well. And so now when I sin and I feel convicted of that sin, instead of beating myself up and thinking, how could God possibly love me? He's going to be done with me. I immediately can turn and rejoice, even in my conviction, that Christ has not abandoned me. Christ died to pay for all of my sin. But not only that, he lived a perfect life, a perfect righteousness that I could never have. You see, relationship with God requires a lot more than just an absence of sin. It requires more than just a blank slate. It requires a positive right standing before him. Moral perfection, perfectly righteous. And this is the part that we don't talk about enough in the Christian faith. You don't just need to have your sins paid for. You need to have the righteousness to have a relationship with God. You need to be morally perfect. And the law is the mirror of that perfection, and it reveals you can't do it. And how fall, how short that you fall. In fact, we're not even in the same universe anymore. But Christ lived the perfect life for you on your behalf. That's why he was born. That's why he had to become a man. Not to just die, but to live. Someone had to fulfill the law. Someone had to keep the covenant. And that's exactly what Christ did. And here's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. You do receive the forgiveness of your sins for sure because Christ atoned for them, but you also receive a righteous standing before God that Christ earned for you. You see, your sin is imputed to Christ. It's credited to him and his righteousness is imputed to you, credited to you. And so when you stand before God, you are in fact righteous. You are in fact morally perfect, completely righteous. But not because of you and what you have done, but because of what Christ has already done for you. And so it was never, ever been, and never will be about your righteousness and holiness before God. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you. And the thing that you have to remember is when we, as Christians, fall into sin, we don't lose that righteousness, right? It's still ours. You know why? Because you didn't earn it in the first place. You received it by faith as a gift from God. And as I began to realize these things, my understanding of my ongoing struggles with sin began to change. When I would fall into sin, instead of thinking, God must be disappointed in me, I need to try harder, I need to do more, instead of that, I would begin to pray, Lord, I just trust you. And I believe that you sent Christ to rescue me from my sin. That he lived a life I couldn't live to pay a debt that I couldn't pay. And he bore the wrath that I deserve. And I know that I'm saved not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And that's what I'm holding on to, Lord. I am trusting in that and that alone. And I realize, right, 
I could never save myself from the penalty of sin. And I certainly can't save myself from the power of sin. And so, Lord, I'm turning to you in faith and asking you, change my heart. This is revealing to me how I still need you. Change my heart. I can't change myself. I can't grow myself. I'm trusting in you, Lord, to perfect me. You see, the gospel tells me I'm a sinner incapable of saving myself, but that God sent Christ to do for me what I couldn't do myself and to save me and to be with me. That is my hope. That's the hope of my justification. That's the hope of my future glorification. And it's the hope of my sanctification right here, right now. Just as I trust in Christ to save me from the penalty of sin, I'm trusting in him to save me from the power of sin as well. Because because of that then, because he is faithful, because he is present with me and in the process of saving me from my sin, the power of that sin, I don't have to live in the darkness of my failures. I'm not defined by that. I'm defined by Christ and what he is and what he's doing. And guess what? You don't have to live there either. The Bible gives you permission to not live there anymore. If there's anything that you need to take to heart right now, it is this. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that is it. You're not saved by the ability, your ability to keep the law. You are not disqualified from salvation by your inability to sin. We are all made right with God by faith in Christ. And he will bring us home by that same faith. And he will help you overcome all the sin and the trials of this life through that same faith. The hope of Christmas, brothers and sisters, as we think about our lives and what what Christmas means to us, the hope of Christmas is that Christ is still with us. He might be in heaven, but spiritually he is with us. And he is still at this moment saving us. And because of that, all of us can be at peace and we can rest in that. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.